is somebody. You know, people may die and go to hell unsaved, and they will, but nobody will ever die and go to hell unloved, will they, or uncared for. There is somebody out there, his name is Jesus, who loves us very, very much. Well, our buses today sure did a good job of bringing people to church. We had a total today. This is the second Sunday since we started running the church buses again, and we had a total last Sunday of 216 riders on our church buses. Today, we had a total of 278 riders on our church buses today, so they did a great job. And, of course, I just want to say again that we're not going about this in a reckless manner. Everything's being done, if I could use Bible terminology, decently and in order. And we're trying our best to uh, be able to socially distance everybody and keep everybody as safe as we possibly can. And I appreciate the hard work of our bus workers, our bus director, all those who are involved in the bus ministry, those who are preparing the meals and doing their best to keep everything, you know, sanitized and safely for our bus riders. 278 bus riders on our church buses today. The West Winston route had 15 riders. The Kernersville route had eight riders. The South Winston route had 13 riders. One of the Spanish routes had 23 riders. The Greensboro route had 23. The King and the Rural Hall route had 21. One of the other Spanish routes had 30. The Mount Airy route had 28. The, uh, uh, the uh, uh, well, we call this the adult-assisted route, but they had four. The Murray Road route had 35. Another Spanish route had 30. The Pofftown route had 22. The Ogburn Station route, 16. And the Siloam route had 10. And so we had three that were baptized off our church buses today. One was saved on the other side of the building. And when all was said and done, 278 riders on our buses. Let's give uh, our bus workers a good hand and good job that they did of bringing people to church today. Please remember to pray for the bus ministry. We have kind of put a capstone, a limit uh, on all the buses right now of no more than 30 so we can provide socially distance, uh, you know, everybody on the church buses. And so uh, some of them are running capacity right now. And uh, so uh, we just need to pray. Pray about all that. Of course, we need more workers in the bus ministry always. And uh, so if you'd pray about that and then pray for the bus ministry going forward. If I could just mention our service on Tuesday night at 7. Brother Harrison will be here preaching for us and it'll be a good service. I'm looking forward to it and then of course uh, the coming weeks those services as well. I want you to take your Bible. How many of you brought your Bible with you? Straight up and down at 6 o'clock right now. And I want you to take your Bible and join me now back in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel chapter number 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll help you with that, page 364 if you have an old Schofield Bible, 364 or 2 Samuel chapter 9. And if you're familiar with the Bible, then probably some of you already know this is the story of Mephibosheth. And so I want to talk a little bit about that story, and I want to try to piece the whole story together. I just don't want to necessarily dwell on the, on the, the events of chapter 9. There's a couple of other times that he's mentioned in the Bible as well. And I'd like to piece all that together and put together the story of David and Mephibosheth. Second Samuel chapter 9, look at verse number 1. And David said, Is there yet any that is, that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. 
And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of, uh, the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. Boy, don't you know, he was glad to hear them two words, Fear not. For I will surely show thee uh, kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Now that is a great story, but we're not done yet. So go over now, if you will, to chapter 16, same book, 2 Samuel chapter 16. We once again read about this man by the name of Mephibosheth. Look at verse 1. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred, a hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young man to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? Speaking about Mephibosheth. And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem. For he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. But we're not done with this story yet. So go over to chapter 19 now of this same book, 2 Samuel chapter 19, and look, if you will, at verse 24. The Bible said, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he came again in peace. The whole story of Mephibosheth. Let's pray. Father, bless your word now and help us tonight. Encourage us, I pray, as we look not only at the start of his story, but Lord, as we see a little bit later, uh, the story, how the story concluded in the life of Mephibosheth. So bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in recent services, we've been making our way through the story of the life of King David. If you were to go back and start back with the first king of Israel, the king, uh, king Saul, and go all the way through up until the time of the Babylonian captivity, you would find that the nation of Israel had a total of 41 different kings that reigned over the nation before and after the nation split. But of those 41 kings that reigned over the nation of Israel, without doubt, David has to be the greatest king that Israel ever had. I've told you before that David would be the, uh, the king, the one king that God would use like a measuring stick, like a yardstick to measure either the success or the failure of every king who would sit upon the throne of Israel. 
Many, how many times do we read in the Old Testament when speaking of the kings, when God would say, uh, speaking of so-and-so, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. Or then we turn around and read about a wicked king that so-and-so did that which was uh, wrong in the sight of God, unlike David his father had done. You know, David was a great personality in the Old Testament. But what we're interested in is the magnetic personality that David must have had. Like a magnet, David attracted others to himself. He was a man who was always surrounded by other people. You know, David must have had a great spirit about him because all the way through the Bible, we find him surrounded by people who love him and who are loyal to him. Oh, I know, like you, I've read the Bible, and I know not everybody appreciated David. Not everybody loved David, and not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to love me. But David did have those who, who, uh, who were loyal to him and loved him and were always around him. Even in his worst times, I'm talking about the days when King Saul was on his trail and David was forced to live out in the forest and the fields and the caves. He always had those around him that loved him and followed him. And as we make our way through his story, we can't help but run into the stories of those who surrounded themselves in King David's life. There are so many people in his story that walk into his story and then out of the story of King David. Their stories somehow become intertwined or interwoven with the story of David's life. And tonight brings us to another one of those individuals that walked into and out of the story of David. Now most of these people are people that we're not familiar you with. Uh, for instance, last week I think I preached about Abner and preached about Uriah and we've talked about Abishai and we've talked about Abigail and Nabal. We've talked about a number of people that walk into the story of David's life. Most of those people are unfamiliar to us. Most of those people would probably not make the list of the top 25 most prominent famous people in the Bible. But I can honestly say tonight as for our church family, this old boy we're talking about tonight is not unfamiliar to us. His name is Mephibosheth. We're more familiar with his story, hopefully because you read the Bible, but also our youth choir sings that song about Mephibosheth. And many people have called his story the greatest illustration of the grace of God in all of the Old Testament. There are others who will point to his story and say it is the greatest illustration of the grace of God in all of the Bible. So tonight we want to talk a little bit about the story of this man by the name of Mephibosheth. I feel like I've got to give a word of caution right up front and just simply say this. There's no way to plumb the depths of this one story. Trying to preach the story of Mephibosheth would be like trying to describe a brilliant, beautiful sunset to a person that's blind. There is no way to put into words the story of this man by the name of Mephibosheth. But what I would like to do is piece his whole story together. I just won't, don't want to dwell on what happened to him in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to consider his, uh, the, the second uh, look into his life that we have as well as the last look of his life. And let's try to take the few bones that were given about Mephibosheth and piece together, flesh out the story of the life of Mephibosheth. Are you ready? Good. Two of us are. Let's get started. 
First of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about how David and Mephibosheth's relationship, how it commenced, how it started. Now, I guess we've got to stop and answer the question this. How did these two men from opposite ends of the spectrum, how in the world did they ever get together to start with? I mean, we've got two men. We've got David, royalty. We've got Mephibosheth, a little lame man on his feet. How in the world did these two men ever get together? How did their stories intertwine? I mean, you've got to confess with me that their stories are as different as daylight is from midnight. Their stories are as different as fire is from ice. And yet we read in our text tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 9 about how these two men, their stories came together. And they formed a relationship together that would last until both of them died. How the relationship commenced. Now if you'll join me in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we kind of get a brief glimpse into how this whole thing got started between David and Mephibosheth. As chapter 9 opens of 2 Samuel, David is now at the zenith. He is at the pinnacle, the height of his power. He is finally ruling over a united kingdom of Israel. David, under his leadership, he has expanded the boundaries of the nation of Israel from approximately 6,000 square miles to 600,000 square miles. David at this point has never known a political or a military defeat. Under his leadership, the economy of the nation of Israel is hitting on all eight cylinders. Peace and prosperity are running like a, a river through the land of Israel. The battles have been fought. The wars have been won. And peace has now been established. And as all that plays out and all that happens, David now, in a time of peace, turns his attention to a matter that he's had on his mind for a long, long time. So he says this in verse number Number one, is there any yet that is left of the house of Saul? Now, I can just see the servant standing around David. When David said, thinking out loud, is there anybody that we know that is left uh, still alive from the household of Saul? One of his servants probably thinks in his mind, maybe he doesn't say it audibly, but he says, I knew this day was coming. Because David, now having uh, dealt with all of his foreign enemies, he now turns his thoughts, he now turns his revenge on all of those uh, that we would call his domestic enemies. He's about to rid the land of the inhabitants of King Saul. You see, in those days when a new king would rise to power, usually, normally, one of his first acts would be to rise up and destroy every descendant from the former king, the former dynasty, dynasty in order to prevent an uprising from them later on. So that king would rise up and destroy everybody that was left from the family of the last king. Now we know from our story of David as we've been preaching through this story that Saul has certainly been an enemy of David for a long time. In fact, that's an understatement, isn't it? I'm talking about an arch, an arch enemy. If you were to go through 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and I did that this past week, and you'll just start counting from chapter 9 to chapter 31 of the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find out there are 24 different times that Saul, either himself 
or either hired somebody, I guess you would say, tried to have King David killed. I mean Saul was David's bitter enemy. And when David spoke these words, is there anybody left of the house of Saul? Automatically in people's minds, they thought this is it. It's now time for David to get his revenge. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Back in chapter 9, verse number 1, he says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul? And then he uses the word kindness. Kindness. Now, wait a minute. Saul and the word kindness in the same sentence is an oxymoron. I think all of us know that reading from the, the book of 1 Samuel, we know that Saul and kindness, those two words just don't go together, much less belong in the same sentence. But we find that David is wanting to show somebody that's left of the house of Saul, he's wanting to show them some kindness. Well, that speaks a little bit about the character of King David, doesn't it? I'm not sure that I'd have such grace as that. I'm not sure anybody in here would have such grace as that to have an arch enemy who's trying 24 different times to kill you or have you put to death and then you want to rise up when it's your turn and they're now in your power to do them harm, to do, get revenge upon them. I'm not sure there's anybody in here that wouldn't use that opportunity to settle the score, to, to get revenge upon that enemy. But he wants to show kindness to somebody, anybody that is left in the household of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Now think with me. A couple of weeks ago I preached about Jonathan. Jonathan was that individual that kind of took David's side in those turbulent days when King Saul was the, over the nation of Israel and wanted David dead. Jonathan was that individual that entered into a covenant, into an agreement with David that he would try to protect them and they would be together uh, for all the days of their life. So immediately search is made and somebody discovers a servant by the name of Ziba uh, makes known to David that there is a descendant, a grandson of King Saul, a son of Jonathan that lives down in the land of Lodibar. And then we're told right up front three things about this boy that is living in the land of Lodibar. The first thing that we're told, number one, is this. He is condemned, he is condemned by his family. He's been born into the wrong family. Being a member of Saul's family automatically makes him an enemy of King David. He is condemned by his family. Number two, he is crippled by fall. Back in verse number three of this same chapter, the Bible said that Mephibosheth is lame on his feet. Now we read back in chapter number 5 how this transpired. The Bible said that David's servants and Saul's servants were in a battle together. And on that particular day, David's servants overcome, defeated the servants of Saul. And by so doing, they not only defeated Saul's servants, but they attacked the palace of King Saul as well. Well, when they attacked the palace, a nurse 
grabs up little Mephibosheth and runs for her life out of the palace. In so doing, she trips. And as she trips, she drops Mephibosheth on the ground. Evidently, it's just a young infant, but the impact of that fall, the impact of that collision with the ground does permanent damage to this young man. And for the rest of his life, he'll be lame on his feet. The fall left him permanently injured, leaving him permanently paralyzed. He's condemned by a family. He is crippled by a fall, but he's also caught in a famine. The Bible said that in verse number four that he's living down in the land of Lodibar. Now the word Lodibar is one of those Bible words that kind of describes the place where Mephibosheth was living. The word Lodibar means the place of no pasture or the place of no bread. It's a barren place. It's a, it, he, he's there probably just trying to hide his identity. He's there probably just trying to, uh, trying to slip through life incognito. The last thing that he wants is for David to find out that there's a descendant of Saul still alive in all the land of Israel. So there he is. He's a prince that all be living in a palace and yet, he's, and yet in reality he's a pauper that's living in a pigsty. You know something? There's a lot of people that are princes that ought to be living in the palace with God but they're living like a pauper in a pigsty because they won't turn loose and let Jesus have his way in their life. And yet we read in the story about how that King David the mighty king, the majestic king, the royal king sitting on the throne of Israel goes looking for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't go looking for the king. The king went looking for Mephibosheth. Always remember, when it comes to the checkerboard of salvation, it is always God that makes the first move. Hey, I've heard people before stand up and give testimony and they'll say something like this. I found God. Well, friend, I want to tell you something. If, it, if you found God, it's because God, first of all, found you. Because the Bible said we love him because he first loved us. I don't know about you, but I was no more looking for God than a, than a thief was looking for a police officer. But I'm so glad that when I went looking for him, I thank God he came looking for me when I couldn't get to him. When the gulf, uh, the mighty gulf was too far for me to span, I'm glad that his hand reached further down than I could reach up. The grace of God came to where I was. There I was like Mephibosheth, condemned by family. I was born into the wrong family. I was born into the Gammon's family. But more importantly, I was born into the human family. And that was a family that was at odds, that was at war with God. I was crippled by a fall. My great, great, great grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve, had ran from God. They had fallen, and that fall not only affected them, it left me permanently spiritually injured in the sight of God with no ability whatsoever to get to the Lord. And I was not only crippled by the fall and corrupted by the family, but I was caught in a famine. I thought it was having a good time. I was searching for this, grabbing for that, trying to find something that would satisfy the deepest need and longing of my soul. But I'm glad one day the king came looking for me and he found me in the place of no pasture. He found me in a barren land. 
So we find in chapter 9, he comes to Mephibosheth with this offer. And here's his offer. It's an offer of food. It's an offer of fellowship. It's an altar, uh, an offer uh, of fortune. It's an offer of future. It's an offer of family. Can you imagine Mephibosheth saying no to any of that? I couldn't for the life of me. If I was a, a, a pauper living in a pigsty, and I was invited by a potentate to come dine with him in the palace and live like a prince... Could you imagine turning down an offer like that? And yet every Sunday, the king passes by. Every Sunday, the king walks up and down these aisles, in and out these rows of chairs, and he says to paupers living in pigsties, wouldn't you like to come and live with me in the palace? I couldn't for the life of me imagine Mephibosheth saying, King, thank you. But no, thank you. I'd rather live back there in the land of Lodibar on the meager portions of handouts. I'd, I'd rather live back there in the filth and the stench of, 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 my, of my home instead of coming up here. I couldn't imagine him living that way, saying something like that. Why, why, he jumped at the chance. I mean, in verse number 8 of this chapter, he said, Why in the world, king, would you want to do something like this for such a dead dog as I am? I passed a dead dog on the way to church tonight. A chihuahua, he's blowed up like an elephant. If I would have stopped, he'd have probably been stinking and the maggots been crawling in and out his ears. Can I tell you something? That's what I was before the king found me. I was just an old dead dog. But I'm glad, thank God, he came by my way one day. He passed by. He was on ditch patrol. He was in the gutter. And he found me where I was and changed me and lifted me by his grace. That's how it commenced. It commenced because the king went looking for the beggar. Who Alan, Brother Alan sang that this morning. Well, I should have preached this this morning when he sung that. The king went looking for the beggar. Amen. That's how it commenced, but we're not done yet. Now go with me over to chapter number 16, and we're going to see not only how this relationship commenced, but number two, we're going to see how this relationship was criticized. You know, if you are like me, you would think anytime somebody gets right with God, everybody would appreciate that. Now, wouldn't you think that? I just thought, I just knew when the Lord called me to preach that everybody was going to love me. 18 years old, so naive, never been out of hardly the state of North Carolina my entire life. And I just thought when everybody, when I got up and said that God had called me to preach, that everybody was just going to love me and just, just, uh, just, boy, just appreciate me. Boy, was I wrong. And can I tell you something? When you give your heart to Jesus, don't you be surprised that there are going to be those who are going to criticize your relationship with the king. Now let me tell you what happened. Look in 2 Samuel 16. And let me tell you now, listen to me, we're after the Bathsheba event. Remember I've told you his life, David's life can be divided in his life before Bathsheba and his life after Bathsheba. Well, we're in that after Bathsheba part of David's story. And one of the terrible things that happens to him in that after Bathsheba event is that his own boy Absalom rises up against him runs his daddy off the throne and really tries to kill his daddy. 
We call that in the Bible, we call it the Absalom rebellion against his father. We're right in the throes of that. Back in chapter 15, Absalom has stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. David didn't have anybody deputed to, uh, to hear, the, uh, hear the affairs of the people. So anytime somebody brought their affair to King David, Absalom would intercept them and say, hey, tell me your affair. Let me hear what's going on. Let me see if I can give you a word of advice. And by so doing, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Eventually, he stole enough of their hearts, had them looking toward him for power, for authority as the person in charge, the person in leadership. He so stole their hearts till they eventually started looking to him to be the leader, and he overthrew his own daddy, ran his daddy off the throne, and would have killed his own daddy. As we enter chapter number 16, David is running for his life. Look at verse 1. And when David was a little past the top of the hill. So now here he is again. Now he's a much older man, perhaps in his mid to late 60s. And you've got to understand, you say, preacher, that's not old. And I get that in our day. But you've got to understand, back in those days, 60 was old. To me, 60 is new 30, because I ain't about three or four years away from it. So... Uh, what is it they say? Forties are the old age of youth, and the fifties are the youth of old age. Well, David is past the youth of old age. He's an older man, and now here he is, just like he had to do back in the days when Saul was on the throne. He's running for his life again. He has very little supplies. I mean, when they attacked the palace that night, David just up, didn't have time to pack bags, pack food. I mean, he escaped only the clothes on his back, running for his life. And then we read in chapter 16 in verse number 1 that a man by the name of Ziba, now he's familiar to us. He's the one that mentioned Mephibosheth to start with. And old Ziba comes to David and he's got all these groceries. Look at verse 1. He's got all these loaves of bread and, and raisins and summer fruits and bottles of grapeberry splash Kool-Aid. I mean, he is packing, man, he has loaded down some donkeys and he's bringing groceries to David. And verse number two, David said, Hey, Ziba, what's all this mean? Oh, he said, I, I just had you on my mind, king. I know what's happened to you. Had you on my mind, wanted to bring you something to eat. Verse three, David said, Hey, Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? Why didn't he come with me? Now, I think the answer to that is obvious, bless his heart. He's lame on his feet. I mean, what's he going to do? Roll a wheelchair behind King David through the wilderness, through the woods? We know wheelchairs don't roll too good through woods and over rocks and caves and rivers and streams. I mean, bless your heart, that night the palace was attacked. Everybody else was running for their life. Somebody forgot to grab little Mephibosheth. He couldn't run. He couldn't be with David. Maybe David wasn't thinking clearly. Ziba, where is Mephibosheth. Look at verse number 3. And he said, Where is thy master? Ziba said unto him, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem. For he said, Ziba's lying on him now. Now let me tell you this, back in chapter 9, Ziba's a type of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comes seeking us in the royal chariot of grace. In chapter 16, he's a picture of a backslidden saint lying on another member of the king's family. He says there in verse number three, he says, uh, 
He says, King Mephibosheth thinks this is going to be the day that the kingdom is going to be restored back to him. Now, wait a minute. Stop. Hold on just a minute. I think we're wise enough to know Absalom didn't attack his own daddy, take his own life into his own hands, attack his own daddy so that Mephibosheth could be king again. I mean, Absalom's once wanting to be king. He's not wanting to do all that so Mephibosheth can be king. He's wanting to do all that so he can be king. I mean, David, David, I love you. You're a great man. You're a man after God's own heart. I know your emotions are off the chart right now, but David, come on, see through this. Don't you want to say that? And then here's what he says in verse number four. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertain to Mephibosheth. In other words, he said, Mephibosheth is not getting anything that I promised him. Ziba, you can have it all. Now, what do I get by this? I get this. I think old Ziba was a little bit jealous over the relationship that Mephibosheth had with the king. I just want to stop and say again, you love Jesus with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. You're not going to be appreciated by everybody. Not everybody's going to pat you on the back. Not everybody is going to be so in love with you because you're so in love with Jesus. There are going to be those who are going to criticize you, tell lies on you, try to hurt you. They are there. Hey, wait a minute. Don't be so naive to think everybody's going to love you. They're not. They didn't love Jesus, did they? And neither are they going to love you, and neither are they going to appreciate me. There will always be those who will have a word of criticism for you. I heard about this old boy one time, and he was always naked, and the preacher said, hey, I'm going to just make up a name. Hey, Brother Harry, why don't you come to the pulpit tonight and lead us in a word of criticism? <laughs> boy, I would hate to be like that, that all I can say is something negative and something critical and something hard, and I certainly would be one of those, uh, I would certainly would hate to be one of those who had to lie on another individual like Ziba is lying on Mephibosheth. His relationship that commenced, that relationship is now criticized. You remember when Mary, and I'm almost done. I'm, I'm saving my, my favorite part till the end. But remember when Mary uh, brought that bottle of oil to Jesus? She'd been working perhaps for a whole life to buy this very expensive bottle of spikenard we would probably call it perfume, Chanel number no. five, something like that, midnight pasture, something like that. Love me tender or whatever. I don't know. We'd call it something like that. She'd been working all of her life. And can't you just see her? I mean, she's saved up all of her life. And now Jesus is about to die, Mark 14. The shadows of Calvary has already fallen across his brow. She knows she don't have long. He's about to die. And she runs home and reaches up on the top shelf and grabs that bottle of oil, comes back to where Jesus is. And, and don't you know this? If she would have just screwed that cap off and said, Jesus, I have been working for years to save this up, and I know you're about to die, but before you do, I just want you to have a smell of this. You know what I think everybody would have said? I think they would have said, isn't she a wonderful Christian? She wanted him to have a smell of that perfume. Oh, what if she'd have done this? What if she'd have grabbed that run over there and poured a cap full of it, just a little cap full, and took it over there and said, Jesus, I know you're about to die for us. I'd like for you to have just a little bit of this before you go and dump that cap full on Jesus. You know what they'd have probably said? 
we need to nominate her for woman of the year. She's a wonderful Christian. But she didn't do that, did she? She went home and got that very expensive box of ointment of spikenard. And when she come to Jesus, she, she broke it. She poured it all over him. Got down at the feet of Jesus and with her hair. Began to wipe his feet with her hair. And you know what the Bible said? The Bible said the disciples, God's people, attacked her. Now, I could have understood if it would have been Judas that attacked her because we know he, wasn't, he, he, he might have been uh, at the side of Jesus, but he never got on the side of Jesus. I could understand if it had been Judas. I could have understood if it had been uh, some of them old Pharisees or Sadducees. But the Lord's disciples took indignation and started murmuring about what she had done. Don't you be surprised at all if that criticism against you doesn't come within the four walls. This ain't a criticizing free zone in here. I wish somehow, I wish when people walked in here, they were transformed into automatically positive and encouraging people. But I think we've been around long enough to know that sometimes the errors of criticism are shot by those who say they love our Savior. Ziba criticized the relationship that Mephibosheth had with David. But we're not done. Go with me now to chapter 19. And we're going to see how this relationship was not only commenced, not only how it was criticized, but we're going to see how this relationship was confessed. Now, again, watch this now. So David's running for his life. He's out in the woods. But don't you know Absalom eventually got killed? Remember that old boy, was, they were fighting in those woods and, man, people were dying like crazy. And Absalom, I don't know, he had long hair. He had to pull his hair. I've heard all kinds of preaching about that. I get all that. I don't know if it was his hair that got caught up in the boughs of an oak tree. I think, according to what the Bible said, it was his head. Of course, it may have been his hair. But his head got caught between the, 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 the boughs of an, of an oak tree. Now he's just hanging there. With his head, he's just hanging there. And Joab, general uh, uh, commander of David's army, comes by. He's got three darts in his hand. And he takes them three darts. Pew, pew, pew. And stabs, stabs him right in the heart of Absalom. He's dead. Now David is free to go back to the city of Jerusalem and become king again. I guess we could call it the second coming of David. So he goes back to the city of Jerusalem. Now look in chapter 19 and we're done. When he gets back there in the city of Jerusalem, the Bible said that there's a number of people that go to meet him. A number of them. Verse 16 we read about Shimei. I may preach about old Shimei. But in verse 24 we read about, there he is again, Mephibosheth. And the Bible said that when David, upon the second coming of David, Mephibosheth went out to meet King David. And the Bible said there in verse 24, this amazes me. In verse 24, the Bible said that he hadn't dressed his feet. Now, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, and I'm not trying to be ugly, but he hadn't dressed his feet. Could I surmise from that that he hadn't been cutting his toenails? Then the Bible said in verse 24 that he hadn't trimmed his beard. So now he's got a bushy beard, his feet stink. Hadn't cut his toenail, got claws growing out of his toes. 
Verse 24, he hadn't washed his clothes. I mean, what a, what a mess Mephibosheth was. Hairs long, matted together, hadn't washed his hair. Hadn't put any deodorant on all those days. David's been, oh, you talk about, you probably smelled him before you saw him. Hadn't washed his clothes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, hadn't trimmed his nails, cut his beard. I mean, he is a man. And he comes out to meet David like that. I mean, you think, boy, at least take a bath before he goes and meets the king, wouldn't you? Now, I question, why in the world would the Holy Ghost write that down in the eternal Word of God? What is so, what's such the big deal about a man that won't cut his nails, shave his beard, and take a bath and change his clothes? What in the, what in the name of heaven is the big deal about that? So much the so that God included it in, the, in his eternal record. What is that? I tell you what I think Mephibosheth is doing. I think Mephibosheth is confessing his relationship with the king. By not taking a bath. Preacher, are you telling us we don't need to take a bath no more? No, please, please take a bath. You say, Preacher, you telling us we shouldn't trim our beards and cut our hair? No, 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 do that. Please, please put some deodorant on before you come to church. Please. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying here's Mephibosheth's way of confessing his relationship with the king. You say, preacher, how? you got to remember this. David is living out in the woods. He's living out in the caves in the fields. Watch this. David can't trim his beard right now. He's living out in the woods. David can't change his clothes right now. You know why? He's living out in the woods. David can't take a bath right now. You know why? He's living on the run. He's running for his life. And Mephibosheth says, if my king can't do that, neither will I do that. This is my way to let y'all know in this palace whose side I'm on. You know what I think Mephibosheth is really saying? I think he's really saying this, as he is, so am I. Look at this verse right here. 1 John 4, 17. As he is, so are we in this world. You know what he's doing? He's just resembling his king. His king can't do it. His king can't bathe. His king can't shave. His king can't change his clothes. And Mephibosheth said, if he can't do it, neither will I. I'm on his side. Well, you know something in these last days, what we need? We need some people who will just say, I'm on his side. We got too many of God's people that are trying to slip through this world incognito. Too many of us are trying to be a friend both of the world and of God. Too many of us are trying to toe the line of compromise. Too many of us are seeing how close we can walk to the edge. Don't you think it's about time that we said, I want you to know I'm on his side. He can't do these things and as he is, so you know something, those of us that are in a relationship with the king, 
ought to resemble the king. Too many of God's people who are in a relationship with the king are failing to resemble the king. Amen. I, kinda, I think it kind of goes back to that holiness again, don't you? Amen. We ought to be living holy lives. Not perfect. Anybody in here perfect? Oh, I see that hand. Is there another? No, none of us in here are perfect, are we? None of us are. But I tell you what we ought to be striving to do. Resemble our king. Mephibosheth couldn't do much. He's lame on his feet. He couldn't pack a bag and go with David. But what he could do is sit there in the palace and, excuse me, stink it up to let folks know he's on David's side. Can I tell you all this? And I know you're too with me, but can I tell you this? I'm not only on Trump's side. Before I got on Trump's side, bless your heart, I'm on Jesus' side. Amen. And as he is, so I want to be in this world. Really, we talk a lot about what David did for Mephibosheth. Maybe we should make as much a big a deal out of what Mephibosheth did for David. Stunk it up. Hey, can we do this? Let's go out here and stink it up for Jesus. <laughs> Let's go stink for Jesus. Amen. Let's resemble our king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for